0: Good morning. It's always humbling to be able to open up God's Word to you. It's certainly a privilege, and I am excited to do so this morning. There's a wonderful passage that we will be looking at in John chapter 5 in just a few minutes. When I was 10 years old, the hardest thing that I ever had to do was beat Super Mario Brothers 3 faster than my friend's. When I was 18, the hardest thing I had to do was break up with my then girlfriend Susan. Or maybe a close tie would be getting through multivariable calculus. When I was 29, the hardest thing I had to do was to bury my father. So, what's the hardest thing that you have ever had to do? Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was moving your family across the country, relocating your family. Maybe it was losing a loved one. Maybe it was graduate school. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? I'm 31 years old, and I would say the hardest thing I've ever had to do is to follow Jesus. Is to follow Jesus faithfully, follow Jesus consistently, follow Jesus as he would have me follow him. It's hard to love Jesus and make life all about him. It's hard to fight sin and find my satisfaction only in Jesus above all other things. It's hard to walk with God, especially during the difficult times of life. It's hard to make the Christian life primarily about knowing and loving Jesus not just doing religious things. So there's lots of things that I would say that keep me from faithfully and consistently following Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 5. You can turn there, page 1054 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 5, and this passage, it presents us with two characters, two people, two bad examples of what it looks like not follow Jesus. Two things that often hinder our faith, two enemies of faith. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So John chapter 5 starting in verse 1. So again it's page 1054 in your Pew Bible. Sometime later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's pray. Father, we desperately desire to follow you as you would have us follow you. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would speak to each of us. I ask that your spirit would fill this room. I pray that you would pour out your mercy upon us so that we can hear your word this morning. I pray that you would change us, that you would make us look more like your son, Jesus, that you would make us a people who embrace your amazing grace and a people who obey you with our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we jump into the text, I want to give you uh, a little background. Actually, I want to uh, remind you of the purpose of John writing this gospel. The purpose is found in John chapter 20. And in chapter 20, he says uh, to his readers, Uh, He wants, he's writing this gospel to help his readers um, to know Jesus as God's Son and knowing that Jesus is God's Son, submitting to Jesus, believing in Jesus, and then so having eternal life. And so that's the purpose of this book. And what we see in the first 12 chapters is seven signs that the gospel writer portrays of Jesus, signs that Jesus did that demonstrate who Jesus is. Now, it's interesting, in the, in the first couple chapters, we see the first sign. The first sign was the wedding in Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. The second sign was the, the, the section of Scripture we looked at last week when Jesus healed the royal official. And then today, we're looking at the third sign. Jesus heals this invalid. Now, chapters 5 through 7 describe kind of a mounting tension that's occurring between the Jews and the Gentiles excuse me, between the Jews and Jesus. And uh, so what happens in the first few chapters of John, we see um, people hesitating with Jesus, having some reservation with Jesus. But what we see starting in chapter 5 is outright opposition, public opposition to Jesus. So Jesus continues to be Jesus. He continues to heal. He continues to preach. He continues to do amazing, miraculous things. But some people don't respond with real faith. So in John chapter 5, what we encounter here are two characters who reject Jesus. Two characters who don't have faith in Jesus. The first is the invalid, who is eventually healed. That might surprise some of you. We'll get there. And the second is really a group of people, the Jewish authorities. So what is keeping them from Jesus? What is keeping them from following Christ? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's set the scene. The first four verses kind of set the scene for us. They tell us that Jesus travels to Jerusalem for a feast, that he goes to this pool. It's appropriately called Bethesda, because it's, which means the house of mercy. And it's near the sheep gate. Well, the sheep gate was in the north part of the city. Um, The sheep would be brought into these pools to be washed and then taken through the gates into the temple courts where they would later be slaughtered for sacrifice. Well, these pools had another purpose as well. There were five porches that were around these two pools. And uh, it says in verse 3 that a great number of disabled people would lie on these covered porches. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed... We see here a whole lot of physical brokenness. And our hearts should break as we think about this scene. It probably broke Jesus' heart as well. Of course, the question is, why were they there? Why were all of these physically broken people laying or sitting or standing on these porches? Well, I want you to notice there's no verse 4 in this chapter. Do you notice that? No verse 4. To find verse four, you actually have to look at the bottom of your Bible. If you're having a, if you have a New International Version Bible, it's the bottom of your Bible in the footnote section, and you'll see there verse four. It says, "From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one in the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had." Interesting. Now, the reason it's cut out of the original text here is because most of the manuscript evidence tell us that it probably wasn't in the original Gospel of John. Now, what probably happened was that the scribes who copied these manuscripts of this Gospel would write these words, verse 4, in the margins as kind of a commentary because it reflected the popular belief about what caused the stirring of the water. So what likely happened is somebody got in these waters and, and these waters were fed by artesian wells, they were fed by artesian wells. And so um, people would get in, and um, the water may have had some sort of medic- medicinal effect, much like hot springs people go to today for therapeutic reasons. And so maybe a couple people received some, some healing from that, and then all of a sudden a superstition begins to develop. And it makes sense because the Hebrew people had a fascination, really an obsession at times, with angels. And so they developed this superstition that this angel stir this water at a certain time, and if you got in at a certain time, then you would be well. But that wasn't reality. Now, our hearts should break not only because these people were desperate and physically broken, but our hearts should break but because these people, they trusted in empty religious superstition. Instead of trusting in God's goodness and His grace, As revealed to them in their Jewish faith, they trusted in shallow superstition. This is the first great enemy of faith that we see in this passage, superstition. Superstition happens today too. For six years, I worked on the campus of Michigan State University, and I worked with college students. I enjoyed doing that. One of the things that I noticed as I talked to a variety of students with a variety of beliefs was... Uh, an answer that they gave me as I pressed them on what they believed. They would often say to me, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I wonder whether you've heard that before. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And so I would press them. What does that mean? Can you, can you explain to me what that means? Can you explain to me where you received that belief, those, those beliefs from? And as I pressed them, they would describe this kind of vague spirituality that has really no bearings in any particular faith. You know, it's not a coincidence that when America needed a spiritual leader during one of the most dire times in our nation's recent history, I'm thinking of 9-11, they didn't call a Catholic priest, they didn't call a Protestant pastor, they didn't call a Jewish rabbi, to lead the nation's memorial service, they called Oprah Winfrey, who many would say is the spiritual leader of this country. Thousands, perhaps millions of people today subscribe to her gospel, which she has dubbed as the gospel of you. Several years ago, a woman in California claimed to hear from one of the great saints, And then she claimed that miracles were occurring in her neighborhood. And so hundreds of families, hundreds of families who believed her wanted to relocate into her neighborhood to receive some of the benefits from those miracles. In our desperation for something tangible to ease our lives, it's tempting to give ourselves to weeping statues and psychics and astrology and so on. Everyone is curious, and many are so desperate for a quick help that they would do anything and even pay large sums of money to investigate these superstitious claims and beliefs and practices. But these beliefs and practices, they have no real foundations, if we're honest. They don't flow out of divinely revealed teachings. I'm talking about the Bible. They have no moorings other than they feel right in the hearts of thousands of people. And the payoff seems immediate. Unless something or someone jars us free from this preoccupation with superstition, then we're going to be left by the side of the pools as well, confused and still very much broken. In verse 5, we meet the invalid. Verse 5 says this, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, the average life expectancy during the first century was 30 to 40 years. And so this man was probably an invalid for most, if not all, of his life. Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to get well? And his answer is interesting. His response makes it clear that he has no idea who he is talking to. In fact, he he kind of implies that he wants Jesus to help him in the water when it's stirred. Well, this guy is hung up on superstition. Just like the rest of the people on the porches. He thinks the promises of a merely superstitious belief system will transform him. And he doesn't see Jesus. His eyes aren't open to the Messiah who's there right in front of him. The creator of the universe. The sustainer of all things. The only one who can bring life He's right there. And what's so interesting, what's remarkable is regardless of this guy's superstitious beliefs, Jesus heals him. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Look what happens next after the man is healed. He Essentially, he ducks the Jewish authorities when they question him. He blames Jesus. After he finally figures out who healed him, this is verse 14, Jesus comes to him in the temple and introduces himself. So he finally figures out this is the guy, Jesus is the guy who heals he who healed me. What does he do? He goes to the Jewish authorities and he throws Jesus under the bus. It was an intentional thing. One thing is crystal clear in this passage. Although this man met Jesus, he really didn't know Jesus. He doesn't show any signs of real faith in Jesus. He's not thinking about following Jesus anytime soon. In fact, he shows more respect for the Jewish authorities than for Jesus. It's pretty amazing. You might think I'm being kind of hard on this guy. But if you notice, the first four chapters, every time... Every time somebody in the Gospel of John has faith, the Gospel writer explicitly says, and he believed, but you don't see any sign of faith in this story, and that's because there is none. The invalid man, the healed man, sits in our pews and stands behind this pulpit today. How many of us have encountered Jesus, perhaps in a Sunday school class, perhaps at a summer camp, through a friend at church? How many of us have met Jesus in some way, but we really don't know him? How many of us would subscribe to a superstitious version of Christianity that caters more to ourselves than to the Jesus of the Bible? You know, I think superstition is slowly sneaking into our churches today, a superstitious version of Christianity. Let me give you two examples of superstition sneaking into our lives, into my life. I see superstition occasionally sneaking into the way I approach the Bible. Sometimes I haphazardly approach the Bible randomly, impressionistically. I don't know whether that's a word, but I think you know what I mean. I flip randomly to kind of whatever passage is out there. I read it quickly. I pull out application based on my own impressions, my own quick impressions. I don't do the hard work of studying the culture, the context, trying to figure out what is the author's original intent to his audience. And as a result, sometimes I miss the very voice of God in the Bible. And you know what? You know what? I don't think it's just my laziness. It is that sometimes. I think it's something more. Sometimes I think I want to control what comes out of this book for me. One scoop of the Bible, one scoop of what I feel, what I think, what I need for that day, and that equals a good word from the Lord. But that's not a word from the Lord. That's a word from myself to myself. Another way I think superstitious beliefs sneak into our Christian faith is the way we approach God. Sometimes we think that we can appease God or manipulate God by doing religious things. Maybe you can relate to me here. Sometimes I feel like if I read the Bible a certain amount of times, if I go to church a certain amount of times, if um, if I'm really nice to my wife that God somehow owes me, that God owes me, that he, he owes me safety, that he owes me blessing, that he owes me something, that I'm safe. Where did that belief come from, that I could somehow manipulate God by doing things, that I can somehow pacify God through doing things? Those are superstitious beliefs. When we look at this man, what we see is he lacks something so fundamental to the Christian faith. And it's something that Jesus constantly talks about in the Bible. He lacks complete, sold out allegiance to Jesus. Instead of responding to Jesus with love and allegiance, that's what we would have expected, what does he do? He blames Jesus, he throws Jesus under the bus. He essentially treats Jesus like a genie in a bottle. And I think we do that sometimes as well. Now, the healed man isn't the only one in this story who rejects Jesus. I want you to look at verses 9 through 12 now. Second half of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. So this guy had been an invalid for as long as most of these Jewish authorities had been alive. He's healed, and the first thing that they say to him is, why are you holding your mat? I mean, what we expect is joy, Right? What we expect is praise God. What we expect is wonder and astonishment. So why weren't these Jewish men astonished? Well, they were distracted. Right? They were distracted by their extra-biblical rules. Now, the Bible says clearly in the Old Testament, don't work on the Sabbath. But what happened over time is Jewish rabbis, they came up with 39 classes of what it means to work. And one of those classes was, don't carry something from one place to another on the Sabbath. So the Jewish authorities were working in an entirely different system, a system that couldn't handle the devastating grace of God in Jesus that broke onto the scene in in such an unexpected way. In other words, they had no category in their minds for Jesus or his grace because They were working in a different system, a religious system. Instead of astonishment and praise, what we see here, what we encounter here is the second great enemy of faith in Jesus, and that's religion, in particular works-based religion. Religion puts the emphasis on our spiritual performance. It puts religious works as the means to saving oneself and pleasing God. But let's be honest. The reality is that no one gets straight A's on their religious report card, right? No one can do enough or pray enough or read the Bible enough or confess enough to earn God's favor and remain in his favor. And that's what the Jews were attempting in the story. They wanted rules, not God's grace. They wanted human merit, not God's pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves and feel good about it. And so there is no room for astonishment here. You know, if there's one thing that I see diluting the Christian faith today and upending its positive influence in this world, it's the lack of true Christian astonishment. Many of us have met Jesus. Many of us in this room would call ourselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And so we get just enough of Jesus every week on a Sunday morning, to be inoculated to his glory and to his greatness. And so we come to church every Sunday, attend small groups and Sunday school classes, and we pray with our kids. But if we're honest, we often feel numb to these massive realities that are presented to us in the Bible that ought to rock our worlds. It's almost like we're half asleep. And I think God is telling us through this passage to wake up a little bit. He's telling us through this passage because what we see is a bad example in the Jewish authorities. So what exactly is Christian astonishment or wonder? I want to talk about this just briefly. What is Christian astonishment? What is Christian wonder? What does it look like? I would say Christian wonder is a profound and personal sense of God's surprising grace. It's a profound and personal sense of God's surprising grace in our lives. Ravi Zacharias would say it this way. He he would say it's something that enchants the emotions while never surrendering reason. Or let's put it really simply, it's being blown away by God's amazing grace. You know, I think there's two huge realities that undergird Christian astonishment, that hold it up, that are kind of pillars for it. And we need to personalize and internalize these realities in order for us to really experience true Christian astonishment. The first is this. I need to have a deep personal recognition that I am sinful and that my condition is desperate and hopeless. I have no solutions to offer. Vague spirituality, superstition, religious performance, they're not going to get the job done. That's the first pillar of Christian astonishment. The second one is this. I need a deep personal recognition of God's surprising grace in Jesus need to know and understand what Jesus has done for sinners like me, that he has lived a perfect life, that he has died a brutal death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that I deserve, and then raised to new life so that I might have new life as well. I need to let this sit heavy on my heart. I I need to let this sink deep into my mind and heart. I need to understand that I deserve hell. That's the only thing that I'm entitled to as a human being. But because of Jesus, I get something far, far better. And if we truly allow these truths to lay heavy on our hearts, there's nothing left to experience except for astonishment and wonder. Religion destroys Christian astonishment by essentially denying these two realities and by promising us that our own efforts can get the job done. And that's a lie. And that's a lie that these Jewish authorities believed. Of course, there's one more character in this story the good guy, Jesus, the most important character. What did Jesus see at the pools? Well, he saw what we see as we read the story. He saw a bunch of broken, desperate people putting their trust in silly, superstitious beliefs. You know, he could have embarrassed them, he could have pointed his finger at them and laughed, he could have called them fools. But that's not what he did, because our Jesus is merciful and kind and compassionate and slow to anger and patient. He engaged the person who was probably broken for the longest period of time and for no other reason other than his awesome mercy, he healed him. Instead of mocking words, this man received words of life. Jesus' compassion towards us isn't contingent upon the presence of faith or the presence of mature faith even. Jesus' compassion and power towards us doesn't depend on whether we've repented of every ounce of silly, superstitious beliefs or repented of our religious performances. God's grace rests on whomever he wills, whenever he wants, and however he wants. I mean, look at this story. I mean, it's amazing that God's grace rested upon this man, a man who, to our knowledge, never had faith. It's interesting how this story ends. Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In his last moments with this man, Jesus shows concern for a kind of faith that perseveres to the end, a kind of faith that says no to sin because of the coming judgment. He says to the man essentially, listen, you've met me. I graciously healed you. And now your life has got to look different. You've got to be a changed person. Or else something bad may happen on the final day of judgment, perhaps worse than what you've already experienced in your 38 years of physical brokenness on this earth. It's not surprising that Jesus calls this man to obedience to a life of faith and allegiance. So when Jesus speaks to you, when Jesus touches you with his grace, how do you respond? And will we treat him like a genie in a bottle, trying to take advantage of him, trying to manipulate him for our own purposes? Will we glibly thank him and then very quickly move back into our preoccupation with religion and trying to do things, doing lots of good things but for all the wrong reasons? Or will we look full in the face of Jesus? Will we strive to know him and love him more and obey him with our lives? The 17th century Puritan Thomas Brooks, I think, understood what we're talking about here very well. Listen to his words. Few follow Jesus for love, but many for his loaves. Few follow Jesus for his inward excellencies, but many follow him for outward advantages. Few follow Jesus that they may be made good by him, but many follow him that they may be made great by him. So why do you follow Jesus? Why are you here this morning? I hope your answer is because you are so astonished by God's massive, glorious, extravagant grace in your life that there's nothing else you want to do except to know and love and obey Jesus. And if that's not your answer this morning, then perhaps you really don't know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do it again, that you would penetrate our worlds, Lord, with your awesome grace, that you would give us a fresh experience of the grace of Jesus that you would help us to see Jesus anew in all his glory. Father, I pray that we would not be numb anymore. I pray that you would wake us up through your spirit. I pray that we would be astonished, Lord, as we think about the cross, as we think about the resurrection, as we think about what these two great historical events mean for every person in this room. And, Father, I pray that we would be people who follow you with our lives. Would you make it so? Would you make us into a people who follow you and love you, Lord, for the rest of our lives, even though it might mean difficulty? Father, we do love you, and we long to experience more of you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.